This is Regenerative Skills, the podcast helping you to learn the skills and solutions to create an abundant and connected future. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. Have you spent thousands of hours on books, webinars, and courses to find out how to design and develop your own dream permaculture property, but you're still stuck and feeling overwhelmed? Come and join my friends Michelle and Rob Avis and Dakota Cohen and Jeff Lawton, Mark Shepard, Richard Perkins, Ben Law, Rosemary Morrow, and a stellar lineup of more than 15 globally renowned permaculture pioneers in three days of presentations and case studies covering every aspect of designing and building a permaculture property. There will be networking, book giveaways, live music, and multiple ways for you to be one of the first to get your hands on Michelle, Rob, and Dakota's wonderful new book, Building Your Permaculture Property. The event is free, live, and online from April 23rd through the 25th. Register today for the Building Your Permaculture Property Global Summit at mypermacultureproperty.com. Hey there, everybody. Welcome back. With regenerative agriculture and agroforestry increasingly becoming popular topics in environmental and even political circles, I wanted to do a one-on-one session with one of my favorite speakers in this sphere, Patrick Worms. Now, many of you frequent listeners will remember him from the panel discussion on agroforestry two weeks ago that I hosted with climate farmers. I got to know Patrick's work and perspective more intimately as part of the online course on ecosystem restoration design that we both teach on. Patrick is the Senior Science Policy Advisor at World Agroforestry, President of the European Agroforestry Federation, and Trustee on the International Union of Agroforestry. He's also a valued member of the Advisory Council with the Ecosystem Restoration Camps. Now, in the courses and conversations that I've seen with him, I've always been struck by the stories and compassionate understanding of the people that Patrick has met in his work and his travels. In order to make some of these stories and insights available to you listeners, I let go of the usual focus on just actionable information to let this chat take its own course. Though we still cover a lot of practical advice in this talk, What I often take away from listening to Patrick is a renewed reverence for the individual people who are working to manage their lands and produce food all around the world. It's easy to think of agriculture and the food industry as these monoliths without faces, but the lives of the people who make up these systems, from those who tend the land all the way through the logistics, distribution, transportation, and all the way to our kitchens, are important to remember and pay attention to as well. To get us started off with some background though, Patrick shed some light on the history of agroforestry and its deep traditions in Europe specifically. You know, when you're in a spaceship and it's a long way away and you take a picture back of Earth and you see this little blue marble next to the sun? That's the scale at which agroforestry can happen, right? Um, We have examples of agroforestry from the Arctic region uh, right next to to the tundra. Um, it's reindeer herding, it's a classical silver pastoral system, it's been going for centuries and it's working well. Um, Archaeology is now showing us examples of agroforestry systems that were maintaining extremely high population densities in places as different as the southwestern Amazon or the Papuan highlands and that we're doing so anywhere between five and twelve thousand years ago. Um, The old story we all heard at school that agriculture started 7,000 years ago when people domesticated some grasses in the Middle East and then spread around the world, it's just a a tiny part of what history and the history of agriculture actually reveals. 
Um, thousands of plants and animals were domesticated around the world in hundreds of different locations over timescales that took millennia and started about 12,000 years ago. So it's an absolutely extraordinary story. And the reason we're only just beginning to discover it um, is because um, not every civilization had the good idea of building a great big fat pyramid there so that we knew that something happened. Most of these things were disappeared in the landscape. Think of the Amazon, for example, there's no stone there, there's only wood. So even if you build a massive structure out of wood 5,000 years ago, the likelihood that anything would be left 5,000 years down the road for uh, an archaeologist to find is nil. Um, so it took the more sophisticated technologies we have today to begin to discover that. Now let's zoom back from this deep history to today and from this whole globe to Europe. Agroforestry was a traditional uh, farming practice across Europe as well, especially before the 19th century, i.e. before we started having external inputs and mechanization. Um, it was simply the way things were done, in particular for grazing systems. Um, the idea that a grazing system is a pasture that is empty of trees and shrubs is a modern one. Uh, traditional grazing systems around the world tended to include trees and shrubs all the time, not only because of the ecosystem services that these trees and shrubs provide to the grasses, um, but also because they themselves provide nutrition and micronutrients to your livestock in ways that the grasses don't always do. And it's not that people were using words like micronutrients to uh, describe why they had these, uh, the, these trees or their shrubs in their fields, of course. Uh, those are modern words we use to describe the mechanics of the science underpinning these management practices. But these management practices evolved through trial and error over time and were extremely successful. Um, by extremely successful, I mean they fed our cities during the Industrial Revolution. They fed our armies, which proceeded to colonize the world. Um, they were successful agricultural systems. The result of that productivity was not always used for, uh, for, for good things. Uh, you know, I'm only thinking of uh, Nazism or fascism or communism or Stalinism or colonialism here. But it was fueled by this agricultural productivity. And today, again, uh, we find that uh, agroforestry is coming back to the fore. And the reason for that is because um, we're beginning to realize the limitations of the wonderful suite of modern agricultural technologies we started deploying at scale after the First World War. Fertilizers, pesticides, herbicides, irrigation, tractors, uh, um, pumps, other forms of machinery, all those things very rapidly made the life of farmers a lot easier, but the limits are becoming obvious to all, and that's why we're having this conversation. And it turns out that you can replace a lot of these things simply by managing your landscape a little bit differently. And the first thing you can do to, in order to manage that landscape differently is to begin to add trees back into a landscape where the trees have been taken out. So there's a lot of criticism and perhaps analysis of trees being integrated back into annual-based agricultural systems and saying that it'll take away from the amount of land able to be, be productive and it could get in the way of the efficiency of the systems that use large machinery and chemical inputs in order to dominate an entire ecosystem for a single crop perhaps. But we both know that it's not necessary to farm that way. And in fact, it's a very small percent of farming that is run that way, which actually contributes to the, the global food supply. Well, there is that, but I'd like to get back just to the way you phrased this question. There is less land available for crops. It is less efficient. By using these words, 
you've already decided that the only way to farm is enlarged monocrops. Any farmer that thinks along these ways is a farmer that will eventually go bankrupt. Because the thing that matters to a farmer is not the efficiency of production, and it's not the yield, and it's not the amount of land that is under a particular crop. The thing that matters to a farmer is how much money is in the bank after he's paid all his costs and sold all his product. And it turns out that time and time again, this resource-intensive resource industrial farming systems that have become prevalent across Europe are not very profitable. They only work at very large scales, which is why family farms are disappearing, which is why small farms are disappearing. And because they only work at very large scales, they are destroying local communities because they are efficient enough so that you need one unit of labor in, in, in some of the most productive areas of Europe per 250 hectares of land. That means that the population density across the landscape is so low that there are no villages anymore. There are no shops, there are no churches, there are no schools, there are no cafes, there's nothing, which means that no young person wants to farm there, which means that as the old farmers die out, the land is taken over by people who are doing corporate farming. And corporate farmers, they don't care about the social network. All they care about is reducing their costs and employing cheap labor and replacing that cheap labor, because it's still more expensive than machinery, with machinery and inputs wherever they can. So at very large scale, it works. You can make money that way. But at any scale but the very large one, you cannot. However, if you focus on profit, if you focus on reducing your costs, if you focus on the difference between what you pay and what you get, then it is extremely possible to be a family farmer on 10 or 20 or 30 or 100 or 150 hectares and still make a decent living. So don't focus on the yield. Don't focus on the efficiency. Don't focus on the amount of land under your monocrop. Focus on how much money you're making. And once you focus on how much money you're making, you'll start tinkering with the system because you'll realize that diesel is bloody expensive. So why do you want to plow that deep soil every year, right? Um, you will realize that herbicides are expensive, pesticides are expensive, fertilizer is expensive, irrigation is expensive. Everything is a cost. And you'll try to cut down on some of them because some of these services will be replaced by trees. Some of these services will be replaced by new till. Some of these services will be replaced by cover crops. Some of these services will be replaced by other kinds of trees. Some of these services will be replaced by direct seeding into a cover crop, etc., etc., etc. And you start experimenting. And as you start experimenting, some things will work and some things will not work. But you'll keep the things that work and your profitability is just keep going to go up year after year after year after year. And eventually, you just not going to have to go to the bank any longer except to check how much money you've got. You certainly don't need to ever again have that really difficult conversation about borrowing yet more money to try to keep a failing business afloat. Can you explain that a little further about how farmers have been incentivized to manage their production systems in a way that is not congruent with their own profitability? Well, the objective has always got to be the fundamental objective. A farm is a business. The fundamental objective of any farm has got to be to make a profit. And if your goal is not to increase your profit margin, then you've got the wrong goal. And in farming, industry has convinced farmers that the only goal that matters is yield and efficiency. That's great for industry, but it's disaster for farmers. I see that everywhere. Here, I have a friend in the Belgium. I'm in Belgium. I have a friend in the Belgian Ardennes. Um, who is doing regenerative grazing and he started 10 years ago with 6,000 euros in his pocket. He's now the most profitable beef grower in his region. All around people are grow intensively growing 
this monstrosity called the Blanc Bleu Belge. It's a, it's a breed uh, that is, whose muscles are so hypertrophied that it cannot give birth naturally anymore. Um, the cows need to be born by cesarean section. And, 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 and at the bar on a Friday evening, what the farmers are talking about is how they manage to put another three pounds onto the maximum carcass weight of their cow, of this particular cow, how they bred him to be a little bit heavier still. And, 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 and they're drowning in debt because it's an extremely expensive, very, very uh, input demanding management system. Just imagine, <laughs> your cows are so fragile. You, 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 a cesarean section for every calf. You know, I mean, it's, 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 it's madness. But they are convinced that this is the way of farming. And to begin with, my friend who was doing the regenerative grazing was actually attacked in the street, not physically, but, but, but shouted at in the street by people who said it was disgusting. He was putting trees back in his fields and, you know, their grandfathers had broken their backs to pull all these trees out. Um, and there he was putting them back and damaging these fields again. That was 10 years ago. Now they come to ask him for advice. Tell me some other stories that you've got from the practitioners that you've worked with and that you've helped to guide into systems that work for their context, because it really is specific to where everybody is, what their personal goals on their land are. And you know this much better than I do, that there is no one size fits all prescription for how agroforestry can work on a site. There is one. There is one prescription. Be a geek. The farmers <laughs> who are geeks, the farmers who are geeks always make it. Um, and sometimes the geeks have to hide themselves. I, I'm thinking back to this woman I met in, uh, in the Ruwenzori Mountains. Uh, those are, it's a mountain range that's in the humid tropic bit of Uganda and forms the boundary to the Democratic Republic of Congo. And uh, um, there, the, 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 the farmers of the village grows a lot of coffee. Uh, had received three years previously uh, better coffee stock, better banana stock, better cassava stock, so better genetics, and a little bit of agronomic advice. So I get there three years later, I look around, and most of the coffee bushes are like this high, and the, the leaves are a bit yellow, and there's not many cherries on them. And the cassava's okay, but the bananas are not doing great either, and the people are obviously poor. And then I see over there um, a place that's full of trees, and I ask them, oh, is, is that the, um, the graveyard? Because in, in Africa, usually the only place that has lots of trees is a graveyard because that's the one place you don't go and cut the trees down in because you know, people might get angry. Uh, uh, the, the, the dead might get angry. Um, so I said, no, no, that's, that's a farm that belongs to this lady. So um, I walk over there and indeed it's a farm. I walk in there. Um, so lots of shade trees and coffee trees, boom, uh, three meters high, overloaded with cherries. Same genetics, planted at the same time. Yeah. And, you know, and, and, and I, the, the soil was black, there were chickens running around, there were, there were lots of cover crops, there were lianas growing along the trees, there was a variety of different trees, including those coffees, those cassava, and that banana, but a lot more than that. And then this lady comes, uh, 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 comes to me, and she's shy, she's looking down at the ground, but she's obviously not poor. She's dressed in new clothes and she's fat, um, when everybody else there is kind of scrawny, right? Um, and, and I started asking a question, and she, she, she's just shy. She looks down on the ground. And it took a while to get the story out of her. You know why she was shy? Because she was ashamed. And you know why she was ashamed? Because she totally ignored what the agronomist said three years previously. She farmed the way her grandmother had taught her to farm. And 
So I start asking questions. Why is, no, why is nobody else doing what she's doing? It's obviously working so well, right? And they hear, well, she, you know, she's a, um, she's a sorceress. Um, or the story, one story I heard is, well, you know, she, she, she had the help of a white man. So what's the story there? Well, it turned out that a few years previously, like five or six years previously, some hippie kid with a backpack came through the village and stayed with her. And apparently he was, an he was a permaculture geek. And he shared some of his permaculture knowledge with this woman who was already farming quite well. And this woman was obviously a geek, right? She picked it all up. She integrated it into her farm. And her farm was amazingly productive. But she was ashamed because she was not doing what the university-educated outsider had told her she should do. And what do you say to farmers who, I mean, I've gone and talked to certain people and even introduced the ideas of not tilling the soil and gotten responses like, well, this is how we've always done it. This is how my father or my grandfather does it. This is a part of our culture and it's always been done this way. Why would I change that now? What do you say to that? Nothing. I sympathize. Um, I sympathize because I have, uh, that, 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 that reminds me of the story of a friend of mine. Um, uh, Indiana, um, two brothers, one stayed on the land, one went off to the city. The one who went off to the city made a little bit of money and uh, learned about, uh, you know, was always interested, but learned about regenerative agriculture and decided to go back uh, to the land and pick up the, the, his part of the inheritance that was managed by his own brother uh, to do his own stuff on it. Uh, his brother, meanwhile, had stayed on that land and for 30 years had farmed that land using the best advice that agro-industry gave him. Ever bigger, ever more, more, more inputs, better seeds, better, better everything. The poor man was working 18-hour days, seven days a week with a day off for Christmas, if he was lucky, and he was still drowning in debt. Then his brother comes back from the city, takes over half the land, and does regenerative grazing. He's working maybe three, four hours a day, and he has no debt and he's making money. You know that almost broke that family because the brother who stayed on the land, who was in his 50s by then, who had spent his entire life running around, being in effect being exploited, worse than a slave, suddenly had to realize that he had wasted his life, that he'd been sold a bill of goods, that everything he had done and believed in and worked so hard for, the only thing he could show for it was poisoned soil and a big mountain of debt. Just imagine what that does to your head. I mean, you are still a young man, Oliver, but just imagine, I'm, I'm the age of that guy. Just imagine what it does to your head to realize that you have worked harder than anybody else you know to pour your life down the drain. It's so hard. That's why when, when somebody tells me that this is the way We've always done it, and I intend. Fine, continue. It's 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 your life. It's your farm. You do it the way you want. You know, it has to be the next generation. Sometimes, it doesn't always have to be the existing farmers. And in Europe, of course, that's a problem because the average age of farmers is what fifty six or fifty seven or whatever it is now. Old. Um, that's the average. Yeah, which, even which higher in the states. I think it's getting up in the sixties. Right, which means it's it's. Of course, you're not going to change. You know, I mean, I've. At my age, you don't learn foreign languages anymore, right? Um, you, you, you are set in your ways. And um, you, you've acquired a certain expertise. And, and, and people who've done industrial farming for 30 years and are still in that business have not yet been pushed off the land um, 
they have acquired a certain expertise on how to farm that way. You know, you and I know that that that, that, that expertise is a is a voie sans issue. You, you can't, you know, it doesn't lead anywhere, and that eventually farming has to change, and that their, their, their sons and daughters will have to do things differently. But if they don't want to change, I'm, I'm in no position to tell them that they have to. I want to take a minute to point out how important this reflection is. I myself work in restoration design and regenerative agriculture consulting, and I'm increasingly seeing things like YouTube videos, Netflix documentaries, and blog articles from peers and others involved in this type of work that are pressing a message that we need to transform the food and health system all the time, especially at the farming level. Like I mentioned in the beginning, it's a very popular subject right now. And while I, of course, advocate for more ecological production methods, and I agree with a lot of the change that is needed in these industries, I'm increasingly left with a feeling from some of those prominent voices that it's so simple to make a change that if it weren't for negligence or for ignorance or even some bad actors in the field sometimes, that we'd be able to turn this all around overnight. It often comes off to me as a little bit pretentious and pious, especially when it comes from people who've never worked directly in agriculture and only know about it from what they hear from the outside. For this and many other reasons, I'm careful not to single people out and try to talk about farmers as if they were a single demographic. The idea that we know more or know better how to run a farm or other ag business from the outside perspective when we're just armed with some catchy Instagram slogan about sequestering carbon in soils to me is representative of the presumptions and the old paradigm of tackling problems that I really hope this movement can move away from because it serves to alienate us from the people that we hope to support and can make communication between multiple sides that much harder. I genuinely believe that we're all doing the best that we can with the knowledge, experience, and influences and resources that we've been given. And for any of us to push our ideas on others without taking the time to understand how someone arrived at the conclusions and the viewpoints that they have is not indicative of the compassion and the humanity that I would hope to aspire to personally. So let's now talk about what transition to regenerative agroforestry looks like coming from a common industrial model, because we can analyze the efficacy of any given method or practice on its own, but transition takes time, especially in risk-adverse business models like farming. So how might this play out? But let's, let, let, let's take a, a, a very common farming system. Let's suppose it's an arable system, and, um, you know, let's... Wheat. Let's say wheat. It's a wheat arable system. Um, wheat is a winter crop. Um, so you're typically sowing your crop in uh, in the late summer and you're harvesting in... Well, sorry, well, in the, um, it depends where, but okay, you're harvesting... You're sowing your crop in the fall and you're harvesting in the early summer too. And, 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 and then what you have is a system where the most light-intensive part of the year... Um, your land is more or less bare. So already for that reason, there you have a strong interest in using a cover crop because that cover crop is going to grow and produce green manure uh, and hold your soil in place when the summer storms come 
um, while your main crop is not growing. Simply by having that, you're already going to see that certain things are going to happen. You're going to need less fertilizer, um, and you might have uh, uh, you, you might notice that you need fewer fungicides. Uh, that your 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 need for those products is simply going down because you have begun to rekindle some ecosystemic processes. You also have the pleasure of seeing that less. Um, soil is running off your land into the ditch or the road when a storm comes than your neighbors simply because you have that cover crop in place now once you have that that's money in the bank um, you need to buy less fertilizer you need to buy fewer fungicides you need less diesel because you don't need to go around so often with your sprayer um, and you're keeping your capital base because your soil is not running away you can notice that and you'll see the financial results of that fairly rapidly within the first season you're going to see the financial results of that it's not going to be massive it's not going to treble your income but it's going to be measurable it's going to be visible then you can move on you can move to the next stage then why kill your cover crop with a glyphosate before you put your your seed down why not do direct seeding after having gone through with a crusher? You also save some diesel there because you can have the crusher in front and the seeder in the back. And so you only need to go through the field once as opposed to going through the field several times. Um, and um, the crusher produces a wonderful green manure that sits right on top of the soil and prevents that soil from drying out when there was a little bit of a late summer drought. Um, so you, you suddenly have other advantages that are coming up, right? Um, and again, then you notice that, well, the wind is only com always coming from the west, and because of the orientation of your field, that wind is always desiccating crop in the, uh, 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 at the wrong time. Well, put some trees down. Put a, put a windbreak down there. Um, and if you choose a species well, that windbreak is going to make you money when you harvest it 20 years down the road. And again, you're, beginning, you're, you're going to begin to see other benefits, right? And, as, and, and once you start down that particular thread mill, you see your revenues go up and you see your costs go down, then you become really interested and you start doing something else. Uh, you know, more mixes in your cover crops, planting straight into a living understory rather than crushing it first, putting alleys of trees down there, putting alleys of small fruit in the middle of the alleys of trees, beginning to understand how to bring animal manure in. And before you know it, you're having fun because you're managing an extremely complex farming system with lots and lots of different products, some of which will fail, some of which won't, but all of which will mean that you can afford the failure, which to, before that you couldn't do. Before that, when you only had one crop, if that one crop failed, it was a bloody catastrophe. Now, when you have a number of different things happening on that land, when one bit of the system is operating less well, the other bits of the system will operate uh, well. And altogether, the productivity of that piece of land, the financial productivity, the profit and loss, is going to be better than before. At this point, you must be at least, if not overwhelmed, somewhat discouraged by this breaking down at the final stage. Can you tell me about some of the things that really give you hope at this point? No, 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 not yet. Well, you give me hope. The fact that the climate farmers exist gives me hope. Um, the fact that um, the whole idea of regenerative farming, which was simply not an issue 10 years ago, um, is, is now um, uh, dominating some discourses. The fact that uh, the, the, the standard farming magazine by the National Farmers Union uh, in the UK uh, um, now has at least one decent article about soils in every single issue. All that gives me hope, right? Um, because this is not something, it's not about being an activist or being a militant. It's simply about reality. 
it's and and the reality is here is a wonderful tool it's called agro ecosystems and and use that tool to make your farming system more efficient and after that you, you know, sure continue using whatever chemicals you think you need to use that we all know over time the demand for those is going to go down from your particular farm because your farm's going to be better run. Let your inner geek go, go free. That gives me hope. Um, what also gives me hope, interestingly enough, is the fact that some of the large corporate players um, are now investing serious money in trying to figure out this at their scale. Um, because they, right now, they're doing it mostly because of. Um, their need for corporate social responsibility brownie points. Um, but they really quite like to figure out a way of doing it at scale without destroying their business model. Um, now, how quickly will they get there on their own through market driven mechanisms? I am not that optimistic that they can. Um, which is why I'm a strong, unlike most Americans, I'm a very strong believer in regulations, right? Level playing field, yes. But the fence around that level playing field is regulation and it has to be properly designed by politicians using not only the input of people who understand what they understand from a dispassionate scientific perspective, but also people understand what they understand because somebody's paying the piper. And, uh, and, and that, I'm afraid, we'll never get out of. Um, yeah. It's a debate that's old. Plato was already pointing out 2,500 years ago how dangerous democracy was and how the best rule was a rule by experts. And that's what we have. The European Commission is a rule by experts, right? Um, but we also know what the issues with that can be, which is why we always, we always get back to, uh, to the sausage factory. I hope this episode today has helped to broaden your understanding of agroforestry and the stories from people involved at the ground level. Just like every week, I want to pose a couple of questions to you listeners. What tree and perennial food growing traditions are there in your part of the world? And how far back can you look to find models of mixed agroforestry in your climate and your culture? There are so many rich cultures and traditions that have been linked to forest food production, and I'm only starting to uncover the wisdom and insights in their different expressions around the world. As always, you can post your answers to join the conversation in our Discord server, and you can find the link to access that in the show notes or on the homepage at regenerativeskills.com. Special thanks to Patrick Worms for his stories and knowledge, and to Zachariah Hickman for this week's original music. If you'd like to have your own original music featured on the show or just want to get in touch, you can email me directly at info at regenerativeskills.com. Until next time, keep taking those little steps every day towards a regenerative future, and I'll be right by your side along the way.